The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. U.S. producer prices fall for a second straight month as easing energy costs offer some respite, while the IMF's Kristalina Gorgieva calls on central bankers to be stubborn in their fight against inflation. A shutdown deadline looms large as President Biden mediates crunch talks to try and avoid a national railway strike that could throw U.S. supply chains into deeper disarray, potentially costing the economy $2 billion a day. The Chinese President Xi Jinping making his first overseas trip since the start of the pandemic, with the war in Ukraine on the agenda as he meets Russia's Vladimir Putin today. Plus, the French government announces it will cap energy price rises for households at 15% in 2023 at a cost of 16 billion euros. Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne cites the extraordinary circumstances. The total cutoff of gas flows from Russia and the maintenance works on several French nuclear reactors have led to an exceptional energy situation. Uniper shares plunge after the gas importer confirms it's in talks with the German government over further support and potentially nationalisation. Well, as we continue to focus on inflation, another piece of evidence suggesting that maybe, just maybe, there is some easing. Let, let me do the read here and you can see how you feel about it. U.S. producer prices easing by 0.1% in August, offering some inflation respite following Tuesday's stronger-than-expected consumer price print. Factory gate prices climbed by 8.7% on the year. That is a big number, but it's the lowest level since last August and, of course, a significant pullback from July's reading of 9.8%. Core prices uh, increased at their lowest rate since June of 2021. Well, the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Gorgieva, has conceded inflation is turning out to be far, far more stubborn and broad-based than anticipated and that economists were wrong to forecast that price pressures were only transitory. Gorkieva added, central bankers must be, quote, more stubborn in their fight against inflation, but also stressed monetary policy needs supportive fiscal measures from governments. I'm going to move on, but what worries me the most is that economists and experts yeah. were wrong across the board when, dare I say it, some of us mere mortals who could see what was going on were right. We were right about this. We, we said it from the start that it was different 
than what they were anticipating it to be in terms of inflation. Now what worries me now is they've got a set idea of it now. What's to say they're any more right than they were? I'll, I'll frame that within the next story, if I may, because I know Karen and Jeff both want to come in on both aspects. So the Institute for International Finance is warning of a string of corporate bankruptcies as the era of cheap credit comes to an end. Whilst a strong greenback is hampering emerging markets, sovereigns access to international markets. It's the latest global debt monitor from the IAF, uh, which says that rising interest rates have led to the first global debt declines in dollar terms in several years. But in real terms, they haven't gone down in any way, shape or form. Now, dropping by some $5.5 trillion in dollars, okay? Uh, not in local currency, uh, in the second quarter. However, debt-to-GDP ratios are edging higher again after five straight quarters of declines coming in at... So how much debt do you think is in the world, ladies and gentlemen, compared to the size of the global economy? 350%. So you've got the size of the global economy, yeah? You're, you're thinking about your own personal economy, and you've got three and a half times debt on that as well. My, my, my point here is a couple of things. As we know from the Goldman stories and other stories we've been hearing about bankers uh, perhaps pairing their operations somewhat, there is a decline in activity in many markets. It's not because people don't need money, it's because people can't access the money at the terms they previously could and are worried about the commitments and accessing uh, the financial markets at the terms that are currently available, i.e. companies and countries who want to access financial markets are suddenly having to pay uh, a nearly real rate uh, for access to those markets. And that is preventing many emerging market companies going to the debt markets. It's preventing many corporates going to the debt market. Plus the second fact which comes out from this IF report, and I know that I have a mild obsession with it because I've always worried about debt. I think ever since I was a, dare I say, a young man, I've thought about it in a different way from others. And maybe that's to my detriment because had I taken on more, I would have a vast portfolio of assets now. I'm, and rightly so. But, but the point here is that there are stunning amounts of companies who can't refinancing can't re and who were kept alive during the cheap financing era, the so-called zombies. And the IAF makes a whole section talking about the zombies. That plus the fact that there are vast amounts of emerging market uh, countries that have concerns about uh, refinancing. They have food insecurity issues as well, which is a very important point as well because their economies rely on food and energy, despite the fact that that's not core inflation, so to speak. So there are some real rumblings of concern, I think, in this report. Just to pick up on your point around debt and the way we perceive it, typically you take on the debt with the idea you pay it off at some point and all along as we've been... But that's your and my idea. The, the traditional idea. But it's right. not what has fueled a lot of activity no. over the last 20 years. But I think if you just go back, rewind a couple of years as we're having some of these conversations, we're looking at zero interest rates and no inflation. We couldn't find inflation anywhere. Uh, effectively, the conversation was, well, these economies need to inflate their way out of the debt problems. But here we do have inflation and some of the poor economies are not able to do this, not able to use inflation to pay off the debts. And we think about the backdrop, is it just because they had a series of crises back to back? It doesn't really matter. It's just a missed opportunity because we don't know how long this type of environment will stay around for. We've got very strong action now from central banks to try and get rid of inflation. So big question mark around this opportunity and where that leaves some of these emerging developing markets versus developed markets over the longer course of time, exacibating some of the, the equality. I, 
would say I couldn't agree more. And I think the emerging markets, we cannot ignore them because of the crises that have actually created bigger crises globally. That, that board, I just want to stay on that. That is exactly my point. Look at the amount of issuance. The, the top line, is, that, is it blue? I'm colorblind. Is it blue or purple? Purple. purple. Blimey. There you go. Uh, global bond issuance. Look at the decline from the peaks of 20, early 2020. I think that's a very, very intuitive board. Sorry, Jeff. No, no, no. I was just going to, um, I was just going to raise the issue of Japan because I think um, it's fascinating in this context. So here you have a country that actually has dealt with its debt overhang from the great financial splurge of the 80s. Now you're in a situation where a lot of companies in Japan actually have more cash on the books than the company is valued at in the market, which is an extraordinary position to be in because you'd think then that people would be beating a path to the Japanese market and they'd be buying those mid-cap Japanese companies like it's going out of fashion. But they're not. And the reason they're not is because Japan doesn't have growth. And why doesn't Japan have growth? Because debt, in a way, has equaled growth for some time since the financial crisis. The problem is every dollar of debt is producing less and less growth in the developed world. Japan is a poster child for what happens when you finally get to a situation where you can no longer keep borrowing to fund growth. And for all the people now who are trying to figure out when the recession starts and how bad it's going to be, the, the real issue is, is this going to be a Japan-style reset where we go back to a world where actually there is very little debt, but you have very little growth and you have relatively low inflation? Or do we see central banks ultimately pivot hard at some point when they say, OK, we've hit the brakes for long enough here. We don't want to completely kill the global economy. We just want to hit stall speed. We want to see some of this debt paid down. We want to see some of these zombie companies disappear. We want to tackle the headline inflation numbers, but we actually don't want to kill off the global economy. So we will pivot at some stage. And there are those out there who believe interest rates will be coming down as sharply as they have gone up. Let's wait and watch. Let's wait and see. But if anybody wants to try and understand what we're experiencing through this period, then go back and have a look at Japan 30 years ago mm. when it hit its bust and where it is now. Because if the global economy goes through 30 to 40 years of Japan-style reset, right. boy, we're going to be in a heck of a lot of pain because all of that debt that you're talking about is going to have to start being worked plus, off. Plus the other time bomb, which no one ever wants to talk about. Can you hear it? It's the US. No. It's me, you and Jeff. Oh, the, uh, the ageing population. Yeah. The day yeah. when we all wear glasses around well, the look, city. Let's be honest about it. We are... The, where are the, where's the ageing population? Germany? Yep. UK? Yep. EU as a whole? Yep. United States? Yep. Uh, well, Japan? Well, Surely not Japan. China's probably yep. one of the most interesting. And, oh, you just... I was putting the ball on the tee slowly. Oh, okay. All right, I was all getting right. to the big... Da -da. 
I was going to get to it because, of course, that has been the great growth driver of the last 20 years. Yes. It's been China. And the Chinese, with their genius policy of having a, a one-child-per-family policy, which, of course, has been scrapped a long yes. time ago now, has got as big a demographic problem as any of us. It's a somewhat of a depressing conversation, so if I can just segue to something more positive. I think uh, before we go down this Japanese-style <laughs> of growth situation, keep in mind we do have technology in the backdrop. As we talk about an ageing population as well. Mm. More tech solutions are required. And, you know, as you say, debt has funded growth in recent years. We've seen it in the tech sector. Yeah. It's been no yeah. more evident than what we've seen in that sector. And yeah. while it has certainly cooled at this point, and you've got VCs now appreciating the cost of capital and passing on that sentiment to some of the founders, I think you've got to reset at some point. We still need the tech solutions. So growth well, is going to be there because here, here of this you go. The risk of sending Steve down another uh, rabbit hole here. I went down plenty um, yesterday. One, the, the one way that you can get out, a lot of these, uh, out of a lot of these problems is innovation. And if you innovate properly in a productive way with a new cycle of growth, then you can actually rejuvenate economies. Absolutely. The problem is um, there are a lot of companies out there who've been faking it to make it, and their founders have ridden off into the sunset with their money bags strapped over the back of their pony. Yeah. Thank you very much. I know We're what I could do. Let's I could see do a grocery the, um, delivery company and pretend I'm a, an innovative technology company. How about that? That sounds like a brilliant Wow, idea. I might get I massive financing from a big years, investment bank. I think you're 10 years too late. <laughs> 20, actually. And what I could do is in 20 years make profit only three times and still get loads of money. I don't know what that business model is. Maybe, maybe some of the viewers can help us. I'll do this quickly. Colts Mead's waiting. He's been waiting ages. Uh, we were up mildly across the board. Late rally on the US markets. Come on, let's whiz forward. Uh, short end treasuries where we're really interesting. Uh, end of the curve is as well. We're going to go very quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Look at 3.82%. That is more interesting. Way more interesting what's going on in the 10-year at 3.43 as well. We had producer price yesterday. They were tepid. You could have something on both sides of the argument. Retail sales, Philly Fed, Empire State all coming today. Asian indices look like this. Uh, down 1% on the uh, Shanghai Composite, three tenths higher on the ASX 200. Uh, and that's it. So Karen is going to say the following. CNBC has been speaking to leading names in the market about which way they see the wind blowing at the Fed and just how far it may hike. With still two for one job openings per worker, wages are still tracking between six and seven percent. So the Fed has a lot of work to do in our in our opinion still to get this down, including taking out the market expectations for easing starting as early as next year, which we think is highly unlikely. The game plan for the Fed is to raise interest rates higher than inflation. That's why when they raise by three quarters percent, no surprise to me. I mean, <laughs> they're headed for nine percent. If inflation stays at where it is at eight percent, then uh, we're going to see nine percent or maybe even more uh, interest rates. That's the game plan. The Fed uh, has, is responsible for all of the inflation. And now we're hoping that the Fed can get their hands around it. We forgot about any kind of fiscal balancing because the Fed just taught politicians that they will be there. Uh, and now they're trying to rein it all in. And they're reining it in so aggressively that I don't think they'll be able to take a trillion off the balance sheet before they have to stop. Get to Cole Smead, President and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital. First question, where are you? You're in Phoenix. Have you got PRs in, in Seattle, Cole? Because I've just had an email from someone in Seattle saying Cole was right on inflation, uh, called it more of a long-term issue. Well, we were on the same page, I think, Cole, weren't we? We, we are. And, and I, now here's one, one question that I, that I uh, think people are missing. you got to remember, prior to the pandemic, 
we were sitting around having discussions and debates on in the media about, gosh, why are low rates not affecting aggregate demand? In other words, in the developed world, you are not seeing aggregate demand pick up and growth pick up in a meaningful way with low rates, which the economists would have thought that low rates would kind of induce the animal spirits for better, for worse in the economies of the developed world. And they weren't. Now, we actually believe that the central banks of the world will be able to reduce aggregate demand with higher rates when we didn't think low rates would increase aggregate demand. So I, I think there's a big fallacy in the logic of the markets right now in thinking that this is purely just a Fed fix. I, I don't agree with that. And let me give you an example. Go anywhere in the world right now. Go to any small business. Go see the hiring signs. There's not enough people. And when I say people, the lowest end wages are missing. Um, in effect, you guys were talking about demographics. Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth, as it was what Genesis says. And it's just what we haven't done in the developed world. We have not had enough people, and we're running into the economics of not having enough laborers in the economy with a lot of wealth and capital sitting out there ready to go do business. And yet, um, even as you talk about that, Cole, one of the challenges is in a world where growth is um, declining or demand is declining at least, and you have excess capacity, i.e. some of these zombie companies, some of those zombie companies have to die before we can begin the next economic cycle. So just looking at markets for a moment here, how much more value destruction do we need to see before we start to hit a base? Well, it, it's funny. I, I actually, who I think benefits this from this environment the most is asset-rich businesses that the inflation effects causes people to not be able to compete with them anymore because the cost of capital is rising in an asset-intensive business. The cost to you know to put your assets together is all that matters. And and I think we're seeing that left and right right now. In other words, with the, the cost of money rising, the capital-intensive business is actually winning because there's fewer people to enter the market. In comparison, I don't think it's zombie companies that are actually hurt by this the most. I mean, they were going to go bankrupt anyway. That's why we kind of call them zombie by nature. They're, they're not really that competitive in the economy. Who's going to be hurt by this the most by far is the fastest growing companies in the world, because they had the longest duration assets in the view of the market participants. And that's why we, we saw punishment uh, using yesterday in, in US markets. The biggest punishment came from some of the fastest growing and the highest returns on capital, because again, it's not how successful their businesses are. It's how stupid a price investors are paying for them even right now. Cole, can I get to that valuation story? Because you can see a little bit of differentiation in the way some stocks are traded. I mean, Apple was going up until recently. We saw even in trade yesterday, Tesla was one of the better contributors to the major indices, but Meta wasn't. Are we getting past the, the baby up with a bathwater type of mentality out there in tech stocks? Yeah, I think, I think we're still really early on in this bear market, just so you guys are on the same page as we are. Um, I mean, you know, the idea that we're going to finish uh, euphoric era, and I, I remember being on TV with you guys two years ago talking about how euphoric the call option buying that was going on two years ago was. We're not going to end this with some garden variety style bear market. We probably got to do a pretty nasty 30% bear market or maybe even 35%. Now, here's the one thing that we can't have in, in these markets. You can't have a credit crisis. Banks are overcapitalized. And I, I, I've been here, I, we've been hearing chatter of this idea that there could be a, a, a credit crisis in Europe and a banking crisis. That's implausible. That, that's so outside the numbers. That's ridiculous. I, there's a lot of negativity floating around. And I actually look at a lot of these problems to be really good. The reason why is they're just different problems than we had in the past. 
Before it was low growth. When are we going to get out of this? Are rates ever going to go higher? Now we're like freaking out about high rates and high inflation because they're first world problems. They're problems we just have not had a long time in a long time. And we're coming off to, to these problems, Karen, at a time when household net worth in Europe and the United States had never been higher. So again, we're more ready for these problems than we had been in a very, very long time. And therein lies the only path where you and I have diverged over the last two years, Cole, and that is on household wealth as well. And quite correctly, when I've been talking about debt concerns over the last quite couple of years, you've pointed to that household wealth as well. And I think we've had very good conversations. My worry is now yeah. that those household wealth is under a vast amount of pressure because of the assault that's being made on it in terms of real incomes, in terms of financing going up, in terms of mortgage costs, which have gone up aggressively. And even at $3.70 gasoline, I know it's dramatically of its highs, but still dramatically higher than the lows of the last 24 months as well. Is that household wealth that's been a bulwark for the US economy uh, under too much pressure now for it to maintain current spending? And of course, we've got retail sales ahead today. Yeah, I, I think I think that's the question of the next 10 years, just so you know, uh, Steve, just to give you an example, what we're really debating, I mean, think of the people that are interested in your guys' show and maybe what I do for a living, et cetera. It's not people with average means or low means, it's wealthy people, okay? And who's getting crushed in this right now are wealthy people, okay? Now, as interest rates were low, we wondered about wealth inequality and those kind of things. You notice that no one's out there you know, doing a parade and saying, guess what? We're correcting wealth inequality pretty quickly with higher rates because it's actually hurting wealth pretty quickly. Now, who's winning in this? Go If you look at America, if you go to the lowest income quintiles, you'll find the highest wage gains in America. So wealthy people have lost money this year. The best wage gains are going on among the poorest incomes out there. And I look to myself and think, well, this is a great economy. Our systems in the developed world are made to catch people in the low incomes when they struggle. And the labor markets are set up in such a way where they can't get hurt because they're getting the fastest labor gains because they're the scarcest person in the economy. White collar incomes are not gaining at the same rate as blue collar incomes. That looks very obvious in more than just the United States economy. And to your point, we, we talked a lot about debt service ratios is what we talked about a lot the last two years. Those debt service ratios are still at the floor. So here's the weird part we actually could see the velocity of money pick up because as interest rates rise, people change their behavior with money, okay? You're not gonna let it sit around yielding nothing. You'll take it somewhere. That causes velocity to move higher, not lower. So I, I think we're gonna find out that we actually could produce higher economic growth with higher interest rates and the velocity of money will pick up with interest rates at the same time. Cole, let me, let me just ask you specifically about the Porsche IPO, since it's something you mentioned in your notes that you're interested yeah. in at this stage. I mean, my understanding is at the moment that there is a, um, a gold rush going on here. A lot of anchor investors coming in from the Sovereign Wealth Fund community and the company already talking about it has sufficient pledges to more than cover the equity that, that is going to be issued. Um, do you think that uh, this um, Porsche IPO at the, the current valuation talk of near 90 billion is, is worth participating in at this stage? Um, give us your line. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the business produces about 40% return on equity. And if you compound that out for about 10 years, um, you know, we're debating numbers around nine to maybe like 10 and a half uh, times uh, book value. And if you compound book at 40%, um, you can see how you make money over 10 years in that price. I mean, just to give you a sense, 
If you go look at Ferrari, they produce 45% return on equity and they trade 18 times book. That's almost double what the Porsche IPO is going to go off at. So now where do I think that's probably the most interesting to your point until the dust settles on this IPO, I, you know, depending on how much this is worth, but let's just call it 80 billion to be a little more conservative at 80 billion euros. That means that 60 billion will be ascribed to what Volkswagen retains the other 75%. Volkswagen trades for roughly about 90 billion euros, and you're going to get a $10 billion dividend off a uh, special dividend off of that. So it's like you buy a company at $90 billion, you got $60 billion of implied value from Porsche. Um, the other $30 billion is going to give you $10 billion of dividends. I mean, it, it's the most asset rich, back to what we were talking about earlier, asset rich businesses that can self-finance and no one can compete with their capital structures. That's what Volkswagen, we also own Porsche SE and our non-US portfolios. That, that, all that looks incredibly attractive, but you've had to be very patient and sit around. You had to go through a meme trade in early 21. Um, and so we're pretty excited for this, but the, a lot of this has been kicked off by what the Agnellis did with with Ferrari, and that you know the Porsche and Peach family got together and said, "Hey, you know that that looks awesome. I want to get wealthier," and they they catalyzed a lot of value in that, and that could go on for quite a few years in Volkswagen because it's just a treasure trove of assets. Cole, it's been a real pleasure catching up. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Cole Smead, President and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. And interesting, that Porsche story, we're going to talk a lot about that. HSBC put out a report saying they think it's worth half of that. $44 billion is, is where they're sitting. So well, we'll see. But of course, everybody's doing the comparison with Ferrari. Well, they shouldn't just do that. And I, I'd like to say that I've done a lot of work on this over the years as well. Uh, and they need to look at the juxtaposed position of Ferrari, Porsche, and Aston Martin. Adam knew that, I was going there, because we did a lot of work in advance of the Aston Martin IPO, <laughs> and I've got to say, the IPO document, and I think you guys remember me going into a bit of detail on this one at the time, what had a lot of assumptions that were just not of this world in terms of what their sales of these beautiful cars was gonna be over the next couple of years. It was pie, in the sky and i said that to the ceo at the time so you know hands up kind of, so i think that you can't price porsche or ferrari you have to pass porsche price it somewhere in between because ferrari is a different beast it's like the i don't know what's the premier brand out there is it hermes or louis vuitton what is the chanel. absolute premier brand well hermes or chanel? because ferrari fans don't just buy it for the valuation they buy it because it's ferrari and i learned that one the hard way because i've and it's got the best ticker in the world race uh, and I, I, I misunderstood that, and then I realized that Ferrari owners are a different breed, whether it's the shares or whether it's the cars. We're assuming that the IPO is actually going to proceed, right? I mean, you get a few more days like the one we had stateside earlier this week, then you get too much volatility in the market. Price it correctly, try and, and it will fly. Yeah, and Don't think, price it correctly, then it's going to be a stummer. And I think a, a VW needs the money to, to proceed with its um, transition technologies as well. I think they, they do want to make sure this deal happens. but. Um, shaken but not stirred. Yeah. No, I was definitely wrong on Ferrari, but I was right on Aston. So a score draw so far. Uh, <laughs> well, the wheels may stop turning on US railways as soon as this week. President Biden has led contract talks between unions and rail companies, uh, but to no avail, leaving negotiators just one day uh, before uh, we see 100,000 workers potentially walk out for the first time in 30 years. Now, estimates uh, suggest a strike uh, could cost the US economy $2 billion a day. Business groups have warned of massive supply chain 
disruptions, while the U.S. Chamber of Commerce described it as a, quote, national economic disaster and clearly would have big inflationary consequences. Absolutely. I just want to just make a comment before you do your next read, that in these diminished times, Great Britain is diminished in many ways from where it was historically in its place in the world. But there is one thing that we are without doubt the best at in the world. There is no doubt about it. We are the world <coughs> champions in this country. Industrial always have action. been. Industrial action maybe, no. No, I think okay. the French or someone else get that one. No, there's something we are better at than anyone else in the world, and I think you're about to talk about it. Pageantry. No. Pomp and ceremony. No. Well, maybe. But queuing. Queuing. Oh. <laughs> we are the world <laughs> champions of polite queuing. Yeah. We're, we're, a lot of other things we are, we've diminished, haven't we? But you, you just join the queue if you see one. You don't even know what it's for, right? You just this join queue, the queue. I know Jeff's going to get to the, the link. This yeah. queue could, could be up to, according to authorities, 10 miles long of beautifully behaved Brits queuing. There is nothing else in the world we're as good at as queuing. There's been a lot of experience over the years, hasn't there? They're, they're pretty good, um, they were pretty good queuers in Hong Kong when I was out there. Back well, in that's the a day. British influence, wasn't it? Of is course. it? Is of course, it? that's Maybe. an old imperial overhang. The trouble, the trouble is, colonial I, think, overhang. I, think, I think once it even started a bank run because oh. people joined a queue outside a bank. Oh, and, is that right? And then that scared everybody and they thought, I better join a queue outside another bank. I don't think this is a colonial thing. I mean, the Aussies no. don't queue. Aussies well, I think Her queue. Majesty would be very pleased with the, the manners being shown so, in these queues. So, uh, what, what we're showing you here queues stretching for miles as people wait to pay their respects to the late Queen. We will be live on the banks of the Thames in just a few moments. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Today marks the first of four full days of the Queen's lying in state in central London. The Queen's coffin left Buckingham Palace for the final time on Wednesday in a grand procession through uh, the Mall uh, to Westminster. Tens of thousands watched along the route and as the procession uh, arrived at Westminster Hall, where the Queen now lies in state ahead of Monday's state funeral. Mourners have been paying their respects um, since Wednesday evening and will continue to do so until Monday morning by filing past the coffin. Uh, Tanya is just across the Thames at uh, Albert Embankment. And Tanya, we can see obviously uh, Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament behind you and um, I think the London Eye is is just, just some way back behind you as well here. But obviously, remarkable queues. And I, as I understand it, the um, the officials have extended the uh, length of the prospective queue as well. So significant is the demand. That's right, Jeff. Uh, right behind me, of course, you can see queues of people here who are moving along. They've been here overnight. I've spoken to a few of them. And as Steve was saying earlier, they are queuing not only politely, not only respectfully, but at a 
pace that has actually been quite fast and faster than people have originally thought. Now they have extended it, the queues go back miles and miles and just next to me here they enter over Lambeth Bridge then they go back on themselves and enter back into the Houses of Parliament and into the Westminster Hall where Her Majesty lies there in state and she'll be there for the next three days of course until Monday when the state funeral takes place. The mood here is very respectful very calm and everyone here wants to pay their final respects and to say farewell to Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.